Hello, and welcome back again to Enterprise Linux Security, this time episode 16. I'm here as always with Zhao. How you doing? All good, Jay. As usual, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And yeah, 16 episodes. That's a lot of episodes already. <laughs> time flies. Yeah, especially considering um, at first we, it was every other week, and then we went to yeah. every week because there's just too many topics to cover um, every other week. We will end up with like a two-hour episode. <laughs> so we may as well do it every week, right? Unless someone complains, but everyone seems to like it so yeah. far, and I do too. So I think we have yeah. a good thing going. At some point, we might consider doing it daily or every couple of days or something like that yeah. because there's just so many security stories coming out that... Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, maybe we'll do a episode or a, another series that's like a face palm security uh, topic <laughs> of the day, where we just joke about yeah. something like "What were they yeah. thinking?" or something. But and then have no that, to that, and then have that Picard statue with the face palm thing. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, you are totally getting it. Okay, so what we wanted to discuss today was um, a news story that kind of piggybacks off of a topic. I forgot which episode it was where we're talking about supply chain attacks. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to go over that again because if someone mm -hmm. wants to know what a supply chain attack is, they could. we, we might summarize some things, but they could, watch, they could listen to that episode. But we have an example of that in, in the news. And I think it's really interesting because it's one thing to talk about, you know, what something is that could happen. But when it does happen, at least for me, I find yeah. it's a lot easier to understand because here we have something, a story we can actually dissect. Yeah, exactly. And in this story, other than the supply chain attack, that uh, is the result of what the actions that were taken by this individual that we're going to be talking about. There are a few additional things that we should go over, like the, the open source aspect of it and mm -hmm. the actual security side of it for the enterprise that relies on, on open source software. And yeah, this is a pretty interesting story that came out a few days ago. And you know what I think what I think is interesting when it comes to any debate, and I use the word debate because I, I'm not saying we're going to get into a debate because I think we have pretty much the same mindset or very similar, but it does result in that, this type of story when we talk about contributing to open source and what there's pros and cons of everything, even something good. I don't think there's very many people that, at least in our audience, that'll accuse open source as bad. I think it's great, but there's going to be some edge cases and quirks here. And when I look at the um, comments, it's like very divisive. So um, and I think the issue here is that everyone is right and everyone is wrong at the same time. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, but specifically, what we're going to talk about is an N or actually two NPM libraries, I yeah. believe. Uh, two very popular NPM libraries, Caller and Faker. And they are um, two libraries that are widely used to Caller, obviously, to provide colored output for your applications, your Node.js applications. And Faker is a testing suite. It's part of a test uh, framework that you can use. It will mock up some data on other classes that you can then use on your tests. It's pretty used, especially on unit testing and all that on Node.js. And lots of other packages re rely on those two. And uh, a few days ago, the original developer of these packages, an individual named, let me get the name correctly, Marak Squire, sorry if I mispronounced this, which is the, the original developer for these two packages, um, he added some, commit, some commits to the, the code base of both of them that basically crippled those libraries. And this had a ripple effect on all the applications that were relying on them, that were pulling them as dependencies and uh, cause them to output gibberish at the start and then even lock up on infinite loops. So yep. yeah, this was pretty extensive and this was pretty, I don't know, it it has some destructive effect on open source reliability and open source, the, the perception of open source um, outside of the open source world. Right. Uh, for example, for companies that are relying on open source components or applications, and this basically set open source back like years and years in, in what trust is concerned. Right. And we'll get to, to this in a, in a minute. And I, I think it, you know, the first thing to touch on here is that we always talk about things like man in the middle or like a bad commit by a contributor, either by accident, you know, they didn't mean to cause any harm or they did mean to cause harm. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's the developer. It's not like someone else that just submitted code because it's a prank or they just 
didn't do something correctly. Um, it's literally the person who created these, or at least maintained these, that did this. And my understanding, based on the article, which we will have linked, is that the reasoning that the individual gave was that, you know, the open source library and, you know, big Fortune 500 companies are using it without giving anything back and trying to make almost, I don't want to say a political statement, it's more like a um, industry statement, but it's one thing to, you know, write an open letter on your blog that you really don't agree with the way things are going and making your voice heard. And it's another thing to put something faulty in on purpose that's going to cause a lot of people a lot of problems to get your point across. Because the first thing I think personally is that it's going to look bad on open source that this can happen and kind of defeat the point that the person is trying to um, get out there. Yeah. And this was absolutely intentional. He did come out and say that this was intentional at some point. Um, he made some messages as liberty, 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 but we're not going to get on the political side of it because that's not the important point here. Um, the important point is how this type of commits can undermine the applications that are that might not even know that they are pulling this dependency. And Node.js and the NPM package system is especially vulnerable to this because you pull one library and then that library will pull a couple of others and then those will pull others in turn. So in the end, it's very easy to come up with an application that has hundreds of dependencies and you only pull a couple of those directly. So yep. when your build script tries to recreate the application, if you don't specify um, library versions, they will just pull the latest version available. And you might not even have this tool listed there, but because it comes from subsidiary dependencies, you will end up with the issue as well because it will still affect your application. This went so far as to affect some of the, the tools that are being used by Amazon. I believe that's one of the companies that he was trying to hit and he did hit them with this. But there are many issues around this. And in particular, Basically, he says that he's annoyed, but that he's contributing this code for free and he's not being paid for it. And on one hand, that's pretty understandable. He's using his own time, he's using his effort and his knowledge to create code <laughs> that is then being used by multi-million dollar companies and enterprises without giving him anything back. And right. that's morally reprehensible. That's understandable that he feels cheated there. But on the other hand, this is open source and nobody forced him to supply this code as open source. He could as very well just commit, created this and deliver it as closed source through some fee or through some licensing scheme. And he didn't. He knowingly went ahead and created this as open source and now those companies are using it. So, right. But they didn't break any contracts. They didn't fail on anything on their end. They just used open source code that was available and they used it on their applications on their end. This has yeah. weight on both sides of the, the argument, in my view. It, it does. And, you know, what makes it hard to discuss something like this is because normally, you know, especially when I'm doing a video, I, I like to have a narrative, you know, start with the beginning, kind of just build mm -hmm. up to the the main point. But there's so many different main points and so many different angles and elements of this that um <clears throat> you know where i think we're going to do a good job discussing it but you know we're also human so um mm -hmm. we're going to dissect it and do little bite-sized pieces mm -hmm. to try to come up with an overall opinion because my opinion actually changed a bit as we were discussing this because um there's a lot of different different avenues now the first thing I wanted to talk about just to kind of get this out of the way um, because I kind of feel like some people have a similar opinion like I had at the beginning. Um, disclaimer, I have used NPM. I have, um, you know, deployed applications via NPM into production, but I don't consider myself a Node.js expert. I'm not a developer. Okay, so there's going to be some things that I don't quite understand. And one of which was that in my experience, when I worked with companies in development teams, um, if there was something faulty in a library, we knew, and it never got out the door because of the extensive testing. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that something like this should not have gone out or couldn't have been missed because my situation is not going to be the same as someone else's. No. So in my example, 
you know, if we're pulling libssl and there's a regression or a bug, we would find it because mm -hmm. it wouldn't even work and then go down a version because we have no other choice, submit a bug report, whatever we have to do to make that known. And then, you know, we wouldn't worry about a library in our app getting out there. But when it comes to our app that I was developing for that company versus this one, different apps have different complexities. So maybe I, the one I worked on could have had, I don't know, 10, 12 libraries. It's not super hard to, you know, just do some test cases to know that everything is working. But if you have hundreds or thousands of other things coming into the program, um, at that point, it becomes a lot harder. But then, as you pointed out before we started recording, when it comes to NPM, I mean, you could have a library that depends on another one. And that's how you get that library in your system. And that um, dependency is maintained by the library that you're pulling in. Yeah. And you are just getting the result of that effort from the developers. So um, when something is built and you have like a Git submodule or whatever's pulling in another module um, or it, NPM is just prerequisites, then it is possible that something can sneak in there. And that's absolutely a possibility. And what happened here, because initially my thought was, well, how did any of these apps get out with this bug? Well, you know, there's so many things to check and so many things to inventory. It's really hard to know everything that goes into your program because the alternative is writing your own modules for everything, which is going to be crazy. Yeah. So we rely on modules because the mentality is don't code twice. If it exists already, don't recreate it, especially when it comes to security libraries. But here we have something that did get out and get into actual applications in the real world, causing a lot of problems. Yeah, and what you said with regressions, that's absolutely true. Sometimes regressions happen and new versions will break some behavior that existed before and you were not expecting it. Um, but on the other hand, we have also been training people to always be on the latest version available of anything, of the right. OS, of the application, of whatever libraries you're using because that's overall good for the security point of view, because usually what happens is that you'll include with every update, the security fixes for a given product that have been created up to that point. So it's always useful from a security standpoint to be on the latest versions available. And that's the advice that you'll get on most applications. Right. And even on this type of packages, because for example, Faker being used on unit testing, for example, you want that uh, that library to be stable and to be secure and to all that because it will have access to all of your code. It will have access to mock-up data and it will probably be able to interact with some backend application or whatever that you have on the other end. So you want this stuff to be on the latest version and we've all been conditioned to always update as soon as possible. And rightly so, and we should continue to do that. And right. something like this, it defeats that, that conditioning. And people might start second guessing when they see, oh, you have updates available for this or that, and they might think twice before moving ahead and hitting that update button or typing the update command or whatever. And it, this really hurts the, the IT environment overall. This okay. is not something that you want people to be worried about when they see new updates. You don't expect updates to break, even if they sometimes do, and they do introduce those, those regressions, but you don't want people afraid of doing updates. Right, and it does it does hurt the mentality overall. Um, and so, you know, I guess you know to piggyback off of what you're saying, you know, we're talking about an intentional one regression right now, but um, regressions are way more common, and it does happen, and then that does make people a little nervous. Like I last time I ran the update, things broke. So yeah. when I run it this week, am I going to have the same experience? And some people can be a little anxious about that, and even desktop computer users will, um, you know, see a Microsoft update and, oh my gosh, it's last time it it borked my documents directory, whatever that um, bug was. I can't remember, it's Windows 10 some time ago. And, you know, this perpetuates from the desktop user all the way to the um, infrastructure designer. But in order to combat this, we all have to be doing the right thing. Um, the other thing, you know, to, to shift gears a bit, when it comes to open source, when I talk to people about using something that you could download for free, whether it be an operating system, you know, hypervisor package, whatever, 
um, I encourage companies to give some money back to the project because the way I look at it, um, if it's like something like Proxmox, which is going to be cheaper than um, a lot of, if not most of the VMware licenses out there, companies are saving a lot of money. And even if they contributed back 25% of their savings, there's still 75% savings for the company. And then the developer can enjoy the 25%. Because if you're you know, saving money, why not give some of the money you're saving back to the thing that's helping you save the money? But some companies do a great job of that. Um, some companies just, oh, it's free. Thank you. Bye. And they don't go any further than that. So there is a, an issue here where you were saying earlier, it's twofold. One, if you make something available via open source, well, some people are going to just say thank you and then leave and not yeah. give you anything. Uh, that's kind of the point. We, you hope that people contribute. You hope that a company gives back. Will they? Depends on the culture of the company or the person. They may not. But that's a risk that you're taking when you do release open source software. But at the same time, it is a lot of work. Even if it's your hobby, even if you're just doing it because you want to put something out there for the greater good, um, which is awesome. But then you get into burnout. You know, yeah. someone's tired, they feel unappreciated. Uh, maybe yeah, yeah. their mindset changes. There's all kinds of different aspects here to digest. That's a very real, a very real problem. Uh, developers get burned out pretty quickly, and open source developers even more so. Um, right. They will be coding on their spare time, on their free time. Um, users will start complaining that features so and so doesn't work like they want them to. So right. the developers will feel pressure to develop more and more, and then more bugs creep in. And the real issue here at the core of this is open source monetization. Some projects have solved this by selling uh, support services or by selling extra features that are not available on the base open source uh, product, for example. Mm -hmm. And that has worked for many projects, but not all. And not all projects have the scope or the, the marketing ability to actually pull something like that off. And I believe it's probably something type of issue like that that caused this. Because if you have packages with the usage that these two have, I mean, they have thousands of uh, downloads every week or every day, even. You have the, you have, I don't know, you have the weight or the pull to actually get something back from what you're, you're from what you're creating. And you should get something back. You should be able to market this somehow. Right. Um, but on the other hand, there is no expectation of that. There should be no expectation of that. And I believe he had some expectations that he shouldn't have in regards to payment. When you, when you release something as open source, like you said before, you're putting it out there and anyone, according to the license that you add to that code, is free to do basically whatever they want with the, with the code, as long as they follow mm -hmm. that license restrictions. He could have gone with GPL, for example, and that does preclude some of the, the companies from using it in the way that they've been using Faker and Caller, for example. There are some some clauses in GPL that prevent that. Um, but he didn't, and he still had the expectation that he should be paid and that he would get some money back from this. And there was no obligation on any party to do that. And yeah, then it led to this. Right. And I don't know this individual, obviously. I don't know anything about them. But so I, I, I'm going to talk in general terms because, you know, I want to keep it that way. Um, human nature, you know, things change. Personalities change. Um, I'm not excusing this behavior, by the way. But, you know, people do change. And someone might do something for the greater good. That's awesome. But then after a while, um, they could feel unappreciated. Now, I'll give, I'll give you an example of this, um, oh, kind of. Because um, you mentioned features aren't working the way that a user wants them to, they get upset. Um, because open source software, at least for a lot of us, can feel like it's our software. It's not this mysterious mm -hmm. blob of a binary that we don't really know how it works. We could find out. Well, we actually, we probably don't know how it works because a lot of us, we don't audit the code or anything. But we know that we can. And we also know that we can usually talk to the developers and put in a wish list if there's a feature that we'd like. And the example I want to give is um, with GNOME. GNOME, I love GNOME. It's my favorite desktop environment, but it's very divisive because the direction they go is not always 
and quite often, is not the way that anyone wants them to go. Now, one example of this with them was the removal of desktop icons, which mm -hmm. I understand made a lot of people angry because it's yes. a feature they use. They have icons on their desktop. They like that. And then they upgrade to a new version. Their icons are gone. And the trade-off here is that um, developers can't do everything because, believe it or not, check this out, they're human, right? <laughs> So they actually have human stuff to do. They have to sleep. They have to take yeah. a break to eat. Um, they might have a family that they want to spend time with. So the reason why was because nobody stepped up to help, um, you know, maintain that feature. And because, you know, their developers are spread very thin, they, they felt like, they, oh, yeah, I'm going to just make everybody angry. Check this out. I'm just going to remove this feature. Watch this. Everybody's going to get mad. No one says that. They yeah. said not. Um, literally, they had no maintainer. But then the user mm -hmm. community was angry and yelling, and that you know this toxicity does actually make developers feel like you know they're never going to do anything right because if they do implement a feature and there's a regression or a mistake, people are mad. If they take the feature away, people are mad. If the desktop doesn't work like a person thinks it should, mm -hmm. they're mad. Um, and over time, you know, someone's doing this for the greater good. Again, not an excuse. But they could feel burned out. They could feel angry. Um, you know, someone could be uh, well off financially, and then circumstances in life make it so that they're not well off anymore. So now they do care about getting money back from something that they didn't really care about before. There's all kinds of avenues here. But in my opinion, regardless of how true or not all those things I said are, it's not okay to poison something and, and punish like yeah. a bunch of people in the world just to prove a point. You could do the same thing by writing an open letter on your blog and putting that out to all the um, you know news aggregators out there to spread the message mm -hmm. um, would be a lot more effective than um, putting bad source in a negative light. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. And it's interesting that you mentioned GNOME. The GNOME project is has been around for, what, 20 years, 20-odd years? My entire and, career in Linux, for sure, at least. Yeah. And they've had, like, probably most projects with that uh, amount of years behind them. They have this issue where the most open source projects will have a group of core developers, even if it's just one or two, and then lots of drive-by developers, the ones that just drop in to deploy some feature that they want. They have the know-how on how to code it. They'll add that to the code base, and then they're gone. They never come back. They never maintain the code. So they just keep adding to the code, and then the, the, the actual core developers will be the ones that are burdened with maintaining that code. And sometimes it happens, like you said, no one maintains a specific portion of the code, so it gets pulled out. There's just in a, not enough hours to deal with all the issues. Right. And that's perfectly understandable. And I read this article some months back that specifically focused on the, the GNOME project, where some of the initial developers, which are now in their 50s and 60s and couldn't care less about developing, they've, mm. they've been more than burned out by this point, are having to make a comeback because they just don't have enough core developers to maintain the whole project. There are a few new developers stepping in, but the code base is just so large and so complex that it's really tricky for newcomers to actually understand it and get to grasp with it and be able to be productive on it so that they can continue to develop it. So some of the old guys are actually having to come back and look at the code again and develop some stuff. And right. you can look up this, I believe it's the growing, the graying of the GNOME project of some, or something like that. If you Google that, you'll probably find that it has some nice statistics about commits per developer and all that. And there is this very tiny group that is responsible for like 90% of all the commits and then lots of, uh, of people responsible for the other 10%. And it's pretty interesting to look at that and it really drives home the point about uh, open source projects and how they are governed and all that. Right. And in this specific case, there is also something that we haven't spoken, we haven't talked about yet. Nobody precluded the, the companies and the organizations that are relying on this code from actually forking the code and using their own repository and, then, and doing their own development on it. But they didn't. They still relied on his repository and his code and pulling it from his packages. So they were bit by this because they were pulling it from the original place. 
like they should be doing because again right. this is open source so you weren't actually expecting this to happen developers get burned out they abandon the projects and somebody else takes over or not and then the project just dies away eventually but uh, this type of action is just uh, another developer going rogue basically and this is what yeah. happens and i you know the other side of this that you know there is there is a alternative way this sometimes works out uh, that i wish was more common I can't remember which companies it, it it was, but some companies that are using open source projects will literally hire a full-time developer with a full-time developer salary just to work on the thing that they didn't even create. That's someone mm -hmm. else's project, but they just, you know, they give back that way by just tasking a developer full-time with that, or maybe it'd be even better to just pay the original developer. But Sometimes we see good examples like that, but then other times we see um, companies that uh, barely acknowledge. Um, for example, um, you know, I'm not going to make this into a retro gaming episode, but I'm a very big fan of retro <laughs> gaming. And um, it was Hyperkin, one of their projects or one of their products that was like an emulation layer to play your old game cartridges, used open source code, but, and that's not a problem. They just, I'm not sure. I'm not gonna. I don't want to speak, you know, out of context here because it was a while ago. If I remember correctly, they um, didn't acknowledge that. They didn't acknowledge the open source that they used, and um, you know, they, that was just an example of a company. Oh, yeah, it's free, a free emulator. I guess put it in the put it in the box and let, let's ship it. Yeah. <laughs> it does the thing. Um, but then the, on the other hand, you have companies that do give back, and um, I think it just needs to be spread that if you if you're saving money like i said um or using something give something back um on my my end um it's no secret that i use proxmox for virtualization I, i've done videos on it and the honest truth is i don't need support from proxmox i know enough to go in and fix it myself um if i need to if there's a problem i go right into the command line i have never contacted proxmox for support but i pay for support i don't need it but I pay for it because I want to give something back. So I'll just buy a support package and they don't have to worry about losing money because I never call mm -hmm. them. But, um, and then home assistant, I give them money, you know, because I use it. But I think that's a, a um, thing that we really just need to push, um, help cultivate the things that are cultivating you, I guess. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, Atexcare, for example, some of our services rely on us looking at CVEs and backporting codes for older versions, for older distributions of Linux. Mm -hmm. For example, we still support CentOS 6 uh, installs. So we have to develop in-house patches for CentOS 6 packages. And what often happens and has happened in the past and continues to, to happen in will continue, is that we sometimes discover new vulnerabilities or we find ways in which code fixes were not uh, correctly implemented or whatever. We will reach out to the upstream projects. We will submit our codes and our new fixes and we will work with them to solve that. And we contribute to those projects with code submissions of our own. So we don't just take from those projects. We also give back to those projects in a way that will also benefit everybody else that's actually using the project in the, in the future. Right. And that's just another way of actually giving back to this project for these types of projects. And now, sorry, go ahead. For example, on the Linux kernel, uh, lots of companies and big name companies like Microsoft and uh, Red Hat and Intel and AMD, the big names in the in the industry, they have dedicated developers that are contributing to the kernel and they keep their drivers up to date and they fix code issues there and they are paid full time for that. And it's still an open source project. But again, this goes back to the expectations. Those developers are working that and are being paid to do that and they're doing those code contributions because their companies are supporting them to do that. But not everybody has that, like not everybody is as lucky as that. And right. you can choose to do that yourself or not. Nobody is forcing you to do it. So when you decide to do something like that, sure, it's your choice. But again, the code is out there. It's open. And unless the license precludes it, nobody is at fault for not giving you back many. No, no one is expecting that or should be expecting that. Right. I, th I think the the underlying opinion that I feel is the strongest within me about this is that if your heart is no longer in it, you need to stop. Yeah. Period. 
end of discussion. Like I, I understand people will contribute to a project because they want experience coding or because they love the project or they just really think it's cool and they enjoy the time that they spend putting in pull requests and it's like a very fun hobby. But it it does sometimes it sometimes it ends up being the case that their heart isn't in it anymore. And if someone's getting to the point where they're even thinking about doing something like this, I think the better way to handle it Again, write an open letter, but also if there's someone else on the project that's, you know, kind of near their level, just do some knowledge transfer and walk away, you know, don't abandon it and just leave everybody hanging. But if there's anyone that, that could take it over or just put a message out there, is someone able to take this over? And that way you can you can go to something you actually enjoy um, because there's no point in making yourself continue to do something that your heart is no longer in because only bad things happen if you're if you um, yeah. if you're not in it anymore. Um, but I also want to talk about the open source uh, mentality and the um, reputation issue here, mm -hmm. because um, <clears throat> I feel like there's a, a very disproportionate belief against open source versus um, closed source. And, and let me explain. So what I'll hear from some comments when a security issue happens in an open source library, whether it's on purpose or it's not, is you know, people are understandably upset about that. And then some people might say, well, open source is garbage because look at this, this would never happen with Microsoft or any of those other closed source companies because they vet it and everything's behind locked doors. I don't agree with that um, mm -hmm. because at the same time, they're saying this, you know, Microsoft is in the news about a print spooler bug that is huge. Um, data being lost from people's documents or or whatever Windows users call it, you know, their their documents or their home directory, whatever, is just missing files or boot loops because of a driver regression. It happens all the time. And, but it's like nobody, re, you know, people complain about that, but they don't remember those those times that closed source has failed so many times when an open source library fails once, shame on open source, Microsoft does it better. Do they actually? Because yeah. my argument is that all software is equally flawed in maybe not in equal ways, but if you weigh the pros and the cons, it's the same. I mean, closed source software has regressions. We saw issues with uh, Ubiquity with their inside person claiming that things got hacked. Um, Windows Server having issues, um, other proprietary um, things having issues, you know, Mac OS, which is, um, it is open source underneath the hood, but there's closed yeah. source elements that had problems. So whether it's, you know, on purpose, someone's putting code, that could happen with a disgruntled employee that's paid to work on it. Um, just the same as someone who's contributing time or an accidental um, upper overflow or something happens or, or opens up. Um, it can happen to anything. And in my opinion, no software is safe from that, yep. whether it's closed or open. But I think open source is often going to get negative press about this, which I don't think is quite fair. And it's not just the press. It's the actual idea that is formed inside of companies that they can't rely on open source. So next time somebody is evaluating going open or closed source and they remember something like this happening, they might go the other way. And right. that's something that we've been fighting for years and years to get across and to get this message out that open source is reliable. You can use it on your workloads. You can use it for everything, basically. And this just gets everything back and back years and years. And it's a real shame that something like this comes out and gets the, the visibility that it does. Not because it gets the visibility, but because of the harm that, that creates. And right. <laughs> you were mentioning Microsoft. We're recording this after the, the first patch Tuesday that they have on the, their update cycle. Mm -hmm. And just this past, past Tuesday, Basically, they managed to release two updates that crippled uh, Windows Server in three different ways, basically. Uh, they broke DC contro um, domain controllers there in boot loops, and they broke Hyper-V, and they managed to break their VPN servers as well. So yeah, it was a fun way to start the year for Microsoft. Yeah, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really that how, you how you open or close the source that, that will tell you how secure or not the, the code is. It right. just I, happens. They're programmed by people and people make mistakes wherever they are working. So it just happens. Yep. Exactly what I was going to say. Human error 
There's no escaping that. I don't care if you put it behind a closed source license or an open source license. We're all human. You know, we go to work one day, we've had enough sleep, we had a great breakfast, and we're very energetic and we're focused, we're on it, we're doing some good work. And the next day, I don't know, maybe there's a bad thunderstorm, we don't sleep well, and uh, we go to work tired and no coffee will help because we're just super exhausted and some mistakes happen. Um, Anytime humans are involved in anything, there's um, a high likelihood of human error, um, which is just the way it is. And all software is developed by writing code. Whether that code is behind locked doors or it's out in the open, it's still code. Mm -hmm. It's still done by a programming language by a human being. So regardless of the license or the situation, whether it's on purpose like this one was or accidental oversight, it it happens. And like you said, with Microsoft, they have that issue. And with open source, we have this one right now. So um, when it all comes down to it, it's just going to hurt the reputation of open source software. And I don't necessarily feel like that's valid in this case. Yeah, I think it's in due attention that we really didn't want and need. And Again, it's hard to then go after this and clear the mess and get the message out there again because it feels like you're saying whatever you were saying four years ago and everything that went in this time is lost, basically. All the trust that has been built, it gets eroded quickly with stuff like this. Who's right. to say that, I don't know, the guys behind OpenSSL or GLibc don't have a fit and decide to pull something like this. And that would be even worse. If you're scared about log4j being a, a big issue, imagine that if it happens in glibc or OpenSSL or other of those major libraries on the, the Linux systems. They're used everywhere. They're used by every application. If something like this would were to happen on a library like those, the damage would be amazing. Right. <laughs> it's out of this world of proportion here. And really another thing that I'd like to talk about on this issue um, mm-hmm. was GitHub's response to this. Because, okay, the, the NPM, the package repository, they reverted the packages to a working version before these commits, and GitHub reverted some code as well, and it did something else. The, the guys at GitHub, they actually locked the user out of his account. And the thing here is that this guy was especially prolific. He administered or was responsible for hundreds of projects in GitHub, not just these two. Locking him out of the system effectively locked him out of these hundreds of other packages. And the thing here is, how do we trust this guy again to, right. to not pull this stent on his other code repositories? On the one hand, we still need those projects to be maintained because there are so many of them. They're used somewhere, obviously. Mm-hmm. And on the other, we don't want him to cripple them as well. So. Yeah, if you're using some code from this guy, you basically should just fork the the repository as soon as possible and at least have your own copy that you can rely on. But using repositories like NPM, it's kind of hard because you won't be able to have the the package with the same name and all that without some fiddling on the configurations. And people won't go to that length to to fix this. So in the end, it might end up that we are going to have to write to reinvent the wheel every time that we are doing a new project. And we are going to write code that, uh, I don't know, that writes different colors to the console or that we can use on our unit tests or that uh, we use to manage files or to communicate through sockets or something like that. Just because people will lose trust on the, on the package system. This reminds me, um, and I think only Star Trek fans will get this, the Kobayashi Maru, um, where you you have this situation where you're training to be a captain and you're going to fail because the game is unwinnable. Um, and, the, and the test is to fail in the best way that you can. Um, in, in this situation, we have a debate because there's people that are going to say that GitHub should not have locked him out. There's going to be people that feel like GitHub should have locked them out. And the problem here is they're both correct, you know, because, and I think anytime you have a debate, what people don't realize is that the reason why debates exist is because there's at least one gray area. There's not a clear cut right or wrong. There's different interpretations of the issue here. And um, like you said, locking him out of GitHub means that those other packages cannot be maintained by him. If he's the only one doing that for a project, then what are they going to do? It's frozen. And does anyone else yeah. know enough about it to step up and um, you know take it over? Maybe, but maybe not. 
so you could argue that it's a bad thing, but it's it would also be a bad thing to let someone continue to contribute to things that has done something like this. So literally, um, if you feel like GitHub is wrong, you're right. If you feel like GitHub is correct, you're right. <laughs> yeah. um, that's the problem here. Like there's no clear cut uh, direction and yeah. it's why debates like this happen. Yeah, and you actually can't fix this like Kirk did. You can't cheat your way out of this issue. Right, you could have a backdoor uh, you know, user account that can still contribute and you could just have a, a pseudonym name. Oh, wow, this guy really knows how to write this software. Wow, that's cool. And it's the same yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, you never really know. Or, you know, in, in that case, you have uh, someone like Spock who finds out um, that it was cheated and uh, reports it. So um, it's funny how Star Trek mirrors real life IT, but I can go off on a rabbit hole on that another episode, or maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> but the point <laughs> is, um, there's so many different angles here of thought uh, and so many directions that it there's just not one clear thing we have a situation we talk about what happened and our thoughts about it um trying to be unbiased i think we've done a great job of that um mm -hmm. it's really hard to be unbiased in a situation like this because we're passionate about open source we want to see it succeed we don't want to see things like this happen but we also don't want to see developers um being unrecognized and unappreciated either because um not just anyone can contribute to a project. I mean, yes, anyone can contribute to a project, but when you have like a certain number of years of experience and expertise in coding, that's hard to get. That takes a long time to cultivate. So um, we do want to show these people that we appreciate what they're doing and the work that they saved us because we didn't have to write this library ourselves. But I also don't feel like people in the industry um, always do a good job of making the developer behind something feel like we appreciate them because sometimes we're too busy just yelling at them for a feature that got removed that they didn't have time to uh, maintain. Yeah, it reminds me of that conversation we had on the sysadmin appreciation day mm -hmm. where we just went out and said that go out to your sysadmin and say thank you for what he's doing. And in this case, it's for the developers, the, the open source developers, they're doing great job. They're doing job a work that's basically unpaid most of the time. And they're doing right. it because they either want to contribute or they're solving their own issues and it's some other people will find that work useful for their own use cases. And it's great that they're contributing this. And it's a shame that something like this can tarnish that reputation because open source is in a pretty good spot in the enterprise right now. Lots of companies are adopting open source solutions as they should. And yeah, it's a shame that something like this happens and can cast some shadow on this. And it's so hard to find out because um, I think a, a natural question might be, okay, well, how does my company prevent this from happening? How can I know that one of the libraries that I'm using and one of the builds I'm about to compile is, is okay? And there really isn't an easy answer to this because in anything in IT, you have unit testing, you have test cases that uh, come from previous failures, right? So you have um, maybe something that's watching for certain text to be on the login page. And if it's not there, then obviously there's something wrong because that's always supposed to be there. Um, you, you have a UI testing, you have all these different things, but then there's always that other thing that you didn't think about could happen. And then you create a test case for that. And then this next thing happens that you didn't um, anticipate. So now you have a test case for that. It's almost like a cat and mouse game between testing things and implementing new things that there just doesn't really seem to be any, in my opinion, concrete answer to avoid this other than um, test, 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 test. I don't know what else to say. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, there is actually something that is emerging right now, which is software bill of materials. We've actually went over this, I believe, pretty quickly in one of the previous episodes. Mm -hmm. It's basically a wait for a specific application to specify exactly what it's pulling in and then have some automatic validation that that's actually what's getting included in the application. So in this specific case, you could tell him that, okay, I want to have this specific version of these packages and no others. So if it happened to be pulling other versions different than the ones that you specify, it would complain at some point of the build process. So look at software bill of materials if you're interested in this. There are a few companies that have some services around it, like Code Notary, for example, mm -hmm. free publicity, by the way. 
Um, but yeah, look into software bill of materials. It's a pretty good idea. There are already some tools that implement something around it, and it could help on situations like this where the issue is restricted to a few specific versions that are bad and known bad, and you can actually lock your projects down so that they don't use them. Right. That that's another one too. It's I think the main point, and I think I, I say this a lot, and I'm going to say this again and again and again. In this industry, these are lessons that people need to to learn uh, or know that can happen, and they get conversations started. So, if you're a developer, you know maybe it's time to bring this up in a meeting. You know, you could say, "Well, this isn't our problem because we're not using this library for not, but this could happen to us." And let's have a conversation about this because um, if this was something we were using, or if it is something that we're using, what could we have done, and how can we? Um, adjust our processes such that it's less likely for something to happen because it's one thing to see something like this on the news and say, well, shame on that person for doing that, then just walk away and continue about your day. But you have to think about it in terms of maybe that didn't affect you right now, this time, but the next one might. Um, and what will you do? Um, it, it may never happen. I hope it never happens, but it could. So I think starting conversations about these things and having talks within the company about, um, what's going on in the news and what the shenanigans are lately to understand possible things that could impact the business. Because if you don't keep in mind these lessons, then um, there's no value to anyone. I think that the scope of the Log4j vulnerability and the amount of issues that it caused has brought that point home. Um, mm -hmm. It's important to break that mentality that it only happens to others or it only happens in movies, nobody's going to hack our company or something like that. We really need to break that mentality, that mindset, we need to move away from it. And I believe the Log4j has opened some people's eyes that this is a real issue and this right. is something that needs to be addressed seriously and people should plan and prepare for this type of events. And this is just another episode of this scale that really drives home the point that you should pay attention to what you're including in your applications at any time. And if they upgrade or if there's new versions of something, you shouldn't just blindly update and get those. You should look at what they're doing, look at the change logs, make sure it actually does what it says it's doing so that you don't, you're not blindsided by something like this. Kind of wonder what the change log showed for this, <laughs> this infinite loop and the gibberish and in the liberty message and all this other stuff. I think um, for the liberty message, he said he added an American flag to the project. Okay, I had to reenact the Picard facepalm thing there. Um, <laughs> I think that's what he added on the the commit change log. Was Hopefully. added the American flag to the to the project. Yeah. Alrighty. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and I, yeah, there's there's all kinds of crazy. We really don't want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> no, I, I think it's always funny, and sometimes in an aggravating way when you look at something like that, you see something creep in. That's, um, yeah. you know, like I, one one company I worked with um, before, I was looking through the source code and I found um, something that says activate kitten mode. And I'm like, I really want to activate that. Like, I want to know what that does. Like, I like cats and I want to know. So um, what, what the heck does that do? I never got to find out. <laughs> There's all these Easter eggs. And in this case, um, something that's not funny, um, yeah. that's horrible, but it's 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 people it's software it it's just um we have to pay attention as best we can we can't always anticipate what could happen yeah. but we still have to try because you know that's all we can do yeah absolutely so i feel like there's so many different avenues here that there may be something that i'm forgetting to cover that's obvious and i hope that's not the case can you think of anything else that we probably should address about this story this topic well <laughs> Just the expectations part. If you go into the open source world expecting to be paid after a few months or after a few years for a project that you're developing on your free time just for free, that happens like in 1% of the cases. You should not be expecting that when you're starting out on open source. Go in it because you like coding, because you like the the challenges that come with it and the way to work in, is different than working at the company and all that but don't have the the payment expectation when you go into this it may happen and it's great if it happens but take it as an added bonus on top of all the rest don't go into it expecting that to happen because you'll only get disillusioned after a while 
Right. Another benefit of contributing to open source is that you get good at coding. Like if you are a beginner yeah. and you're just starting out, um, over the years, if you think about the previous year, you'll notice that your skills have increased. And then after 10 years, you're like, wow, I can't believe I at one point barely knew what an if statement was. And now I'm like high level computer science stuff going on here. Um, and I feel like that perpetuates into your actual career. If that's what you do as a for a living, like being involved in the community, contributing plus, you know, you're basically honing your craft. I would argue in some ways, um, yes, you need to pay the bills and you have to pay your rent. But at the same time, that's real experience and you're getting really good at this. So you look at the overall value of it. Yes, I wish everyone got paid um, for doing this, but um, sometimes a promotion that you get at work could be due to, at least in part by how much you've been contributing, the extra practice that you've been getting. Um, yeah. But at the very least, if your heart's not in it, you got to walk away because yeah. that there's no Do other. add it to your resume. It, this is actual experience and real world experience. If you do participate in open source projects, make sure you have that on, on your resume or when you're applying for a job somewhere, because this counts. This is actual work. Even if you're not paying, not being paid when you're creating it, it will help you out further down the road. Just don't expect it immediately or from that direct uh, work. Right. Absolutely. It, it's all there's there's all kinds of different avenues to consider about the value here, because um, and, and sometimes the value is something that you'll never know. Like yeah. I tell people that are interested in software development to absolutely pay attention to GitHub and look at code, like look at real code, because it's all right there. Like when mm -hmm. I started, I didn't have access to all this code as examples of how to do something. But if I want to learn programming, there's like the biggest library on earth right there of actual code that does real things in real programming languages. And there's going to be a lot of people that look at the code and they learn something from what you've done, but they might not, you know, think to, Oh, thank you for putting that on GitHub. I used it to learn how to write C plus mm plus. -hmm. I appreciate it. Uh, people don't generally do that, but you're contributing to this greater um, collection of code that people can dissect and learn from. And that's an opportunity that I wish I had earlier, earlier in my career. I might have even been a developer at this point. So yeah. um, there's definitely a lot of value here. So just just keep your head up, um, you know, just um, do it feels right. Not this. Obviously, don't put a bad commit in there. If that feels right, that's not right. But um, at least... Um, you know, do what's in your heart, contribute to what you're interested in. And if you're no longer interested in the project, move on, or at least spread some awareness about your, how you feel. If you feel like you're not getting what you think people should be getting, um, you know, write it in a blog, make people know about it. Um, don't stay yeah. silent, but also don't be destructive. Yeah. Just move on. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So I think that's about it for this topic. It was a fascinating episode. Um, I think we've raised a lot of questions here. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, if people are going to be debating in the comments, keep it in the spirit of open source um, yeah. and keep it civil because we don't want any toxicity. That's not going to help anyone. We, we're raising awareness and um, helping people understand what can happen mm -hmm. and have conversations with your people about this. Um, get the conversation going because I think that's the ultimate thing that we can do in response to this is use it as a lesson. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you again next week. Yeah. Until the next one, everybody.